Let Them Lead is a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today. Your host is John Bacon, author of the book, Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team, which led to this podcast. On Let Them Lead, John talks to remarkable leaders from every field imaginable. Automotive, computers, food service, media, education, and athletics, just to name a few. And they share their hard-won wisdom, amazing stories, and a few laughs. You'll also learn a few things you can use tomorrow, and things you can think about the rest of your life. John always finishes with three takeaways and a discussion of their favorite teacher. In the words of John's fifth grade teacher, Mr. Puddock, it's fast, it's fun, and we get it done. So please join us for an entertaining and inspiring discussion. You'll be glad you did. You can subscribe to the podcast through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please feel free to leave your comments about any and all of the podcast episodes. And by all means, spread the word. That's how the word gets spread. And now here's our latest episode of Let Them Lead, presented by your host, John U. Bacon. Hello and welcome back for another episode of Let Them Lead, the podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today. I'm John U. Bacon, the author of Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. And as you know, I'm not making that up. Today, we've got a special guest, a true legend, Monsieur Serge Savard. If you know hockey, you know Serge Savard. He's one of the 50 greatest players of all time. He's got more Stanley Cups than most players have played seasons of course, and set all kinds of records we'll talk about along the way. But also, when I did my book, uh, The Greatest Comeback, about the Summit Series in 1972, what came out again and again and again from Serge's teammates, uh, like Bob Clark, like Red Berenson, like Brad Park, was what a tremendous leader Serge Savard has always been, and of course, a former captain and president of the Montreal Canadiens. Monsieur Savard, bonjour. Hey, hi, how are you? Doing okay, and of course, his English is better than mine, so we'll we yeah. use that as well. <laughs> uh, well, my grew- French better than yours. That's all. Oh, we know that for sure. That's not a question. So uh, you grew up in a tiny town, uh, Landrion, Quebec, if I pronounced that correctly, a town of about a thousand people. Uh, your grandfather and your father both ran a butter factory. Your father was the mayor of that small town. What impression did that leave on you as a young boy growing up in a small town? Well, I, 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 I guess all my life uh, I was a lot on on the influence of my father. Uh, my father was my hero. Uh, uh, I was the youngest one in the family, and and by the time I knew where, where I was, my father was a mayor already. I think he was a mayor over thirty years of that little town, uh, and uh, and taught me, you know, all the 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 right thing that I should know. Uh, being especially being a good man, I don't know how many times he mentioned to me in life you have to be a good man, and I saw my father uh, all his life helping others, and and uh, you know he was a leader of that community, and everybody was doing business with him. All, all, all the farmers were bringing him their 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 milk to the to my father's factory. And uh, he helped them all, and uh, and and community was very, very, very strong, and 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 uh, I, I guess I got that from my father, and I I I've been involved uh, all my life uh, in community work, and that's really what my father taught me. Well, that lesson's well learned. You've exercised it well. Friends of mine who played for the Montreal Canadiens when you were the captain, they said nobody was better bringing in the young guys, the new guys, and so on, like Pat Hughes, a mutual friend, of course, than you were. As soon as practice is over, you go down across the street, you get a croque monsieur and a beer or two, and you become friends. And he said winning teams do that, and Montreal did it better than anybody. Well, uh, I, I guess it, it, it's really, when you walk in the Montreal Canadian dressing room, uh, there, there's all those those sign uh, on top of the rooms. And, and what we got, we got it from John Billabo, Rocket Richard, the players that were there before and taught us what the team is all about. And, uh, and I know in Montreal, we won many years that we should not, but we, 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 we won because we knew how to win as a team. 
And every time you forget that, that, that hockey is a sports team, you're not playing golf, you're not playing tennis, you're playing hockey, it's a sports team, uh, and you need everybody involved to win. And that, that made us, the, that gave us the ability of beating better team because we, we were taught, we were taught, my first meeting with Toe Blake, we were taught that a goals against is just as important as a goals for. And, and we weren't allowed to give a goals against. And every, every, every top player is like in my time, Belleville. And after that, Guy Lafleur was the top player in the league. He was not allowed, not coming back in his own zone. So everybody fit into the mold. And, and that's why, that's what I try to, to give back to my players when I became GM. And everybody claimed that after we won in 86 and 93 that I was lucky. I don't think we were lucky. I think we were just a better team on the ice. And you proved it, of course. Uh, the key for you non-hockey fans out there, offense versus defense. On offense, a star player like Gila Fleur or Yvonne Cornway, my favorite growing up, as you know, they can go through everybody and score a goal, and that's great. For defense to work, to, to throw a shutout, if you will, in hockey, Every single player on the ice can't screw up. One guy screws up, you get scored against. Whereas on offense, one guy does a good thing, that's all it takes. So defense, I think, is far tougher. And that's, frankly, how I measure a coach in almost any sport. You have to get everybody to play defense for defense to work. And Toe Blake, your first coach, the legend, of course, did a great job with you on that. Well, uh, I, I played for Toe Blake uh, only one year, my first year in the league. And we're lucky enough we won the Cup that year in 19. 67, 68, although I made about three training camps before that. But I, I always remember before my first game, he brought, he brought me in his office and, and, and he explained to me how to get the puck out of our zone and in their zone. And, and, and after that, the first meeting, before we jump on the ice, the first day, the first game of the season, he says, if you guys give less than 100, I think it's 180 or 85 goals. I forgot the numbers. I can guarantee you that you will finish first. So that's that's the importance that those guys give for the goals against. And 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 we did. And every goaltender that played in Montreal, I I don't care how good they were, they all won the Vizina Trophy because of the way, mainly because of the way the team played. Oh, that makes sense, of course, and that's a team. Outfit, 180 goals against uh, with the great Toe Blake. Uh, it also shows, by the way, the stereotype, of course, is the flying Frenchman, this great offense. You guys were had great forwards, of course, great passing. But what Toe Blake emphasized with you guys privately was defense. That speaks volumes. Yeah, well, uh, I, 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 you know, I, I look at today's hockey and I see, I see, I see sometimes three, four, Breakaway and won the same the same game and I think I would have been on the bench giving all those <laughs> those breakaways. We, we we weren't just allowed to do that, and, right? And uh, and uh, Scotty Bowman, which was my coach and junior and and many many years in the in the National Hockey League and and to me he's the best coach I play with. I don't count Toe Blake because I played only one year. That was the end of his career. But 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 but. Even Scotty Bowman, he learned from Toe Blake. He was in, the, in our organization in junior, and he, he looked up at Toe Blake, and, and uh, he was he was a you know he was ahead of his time. Like Scotty Bowman was ahead of his time. Today the game has changed, but he's the one that brought all those changes and and he was trying new things. Uh, and uh, of course, with with Scotty Bowman, we weren't allowed to give goals against. I saw it up close, by the way, when I was at the Detroit News from 95 to 99. And uh, if I was scheduled to speak to a player after practice, <clears throat> but he had a bad practice on defense, I was not going to talk to that player. He was, in, <laughs> he was in Scotty's doghouse in his office, and that was a one-way conversation. So, And as soon as Scotty got to Detroit, one of the first things he did was start the rumor that Steve Eiserman might get traded. And I'm sure the reason he did that is Eiserman was not yet a two-way player. And his message was, I don't care how great you are, if you're the legend here in Detroit, if you're not willing to come back and block shots and finish your checks, it's not going to work here, which that message got through to everybody with the Red Wings as it did 
in Montreal. Yeah, uh, I, I I think I was the GM at that time. And, you were uh, when Eisenman was. Uh, uh, I don't think. Uh, while I try to get Eisenman in those days, when I learned he was he was on the block, I, I spoke to his agent many times, uh, uh, and he was ready to come in Montreal. I, I, I if I could have made the deal, but I guess it was true for 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 a lot of teams that tried to get him and. I don't think the, the 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 Red Wings were very serious about trading him, but but I, I I can't tell you that I did try. There you go. Well, that's news to me, by the way. I can tell you that I don't know if they're serious about trading him. I would be surprised if they were. But I guarantee you that Scotty Bone was very serious about sending Steve Eisman a message, and I think it was received because his game yeah, changed. Yeah, but I, I I I know, but 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 Scotty was trying to 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 bring. To bring the same system that we had in Montreal, and that's include getting your top player to get into the mold. And uh, and I, I I don't think Scotty had the last word about trading a guy like <laughs> Isaac. You know, you 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 trade you don't trade you don't trade a franchise players overnight like that. But but uh, I. Personally, I never thought that was very, very serious. Uh, well, you'd know because you're answering the phone. Eisman's numbers went down, of course. His scoring went down, but the cups went up, and that's just how you do it in Montreal, naturally. So uh, we mentioned uh, Jean Beliveau. You're a seven-year-old kid in 1953 when you finally get a radio, and you can hear the Montreal yeah. broadcast. And you're yeah. the your family. This is a great deal. And Jean Beliveau, I mean, he's Mr. Canadian, obviously. Uh, yeah, we're talking about – we're talking about 1953. Uh, where I'm from, there was no electricity, and uh, we 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 had uh, we had the uh, big radio about that high. We had the electricity in '53. I'm sorry, in '53 we had television in '57. Uh, we were listening to uh, to all the games on radio, of course, and and we had that was the only sports that that we we really had at that time. Uh, and of course, when Belleville was brought up for an exhibition game, not an exhibition game, for a tryout, it was a regular season. And he was brought for three games. He scored five goals. But the very first game, he scored three goals. Uh, and I was listening to that game on radio. And I was seven years old. And I played four years with John Belleville after that. So that that's pretty amazing. It's, a, it's one of my greatest souvenirs. I live in the same city than him in Longueuil. I uh, I was a young kid, uh, 21 years old, traveling with him to the airport and pick him up at, at his house and bring him back because I was leaving the furthest. I had to get to the cab first. And uh, what a great man. He was the same guy with me than with uh, the owners. And uh, first guy I met, my first training camp when I walk into the the dressing room, first guy there is Jean Beliveau, and he welcomed me, you know, and I says, wow, what's what's going on here? And uh, th- we were a big family, and uh, uh, and uh, that pays down the road, you know, that pays. I love that. And your great uh, autobiography, which I recommend strongly to our listeners here, Forever Canadian. It is in both French and in English. I've read it. It's great. Well done, by the way, Monsieur Savard. Uh, you mentioned that great scene with Jean Beliveau, how he reached out first. You took that with you. When you were the captain, when you were Mr. Canadian, you're the one who'd take in Pat Hughes and guys like that and make sure they felt welcome right away. You learned a lot from Jean Beliveau. Yeah, we we uh, we, we learned from those guys. Those guys taught us, you know, how to become a good team player uh, and to stay together in the summer, we golf tournament, and we we, we 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 were just good friends and and you know on teams when I first started on the team uh, John Ferguson was probably my best friend and after that I was very close to uh, uh, Gila Point and Larry Robinson and it turned out to be they called they still called them the big tree but we were we were very 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 close it still is you know I I I, I talk to Gila Point almost every week. He's, he's, he's still, and he, you know, he's very sick, and he went through two cancer, and he's a survivor, and he works real hard at it. And uh, 
And Larry, I, I don't speak every week, but I, I stay in touch, you know, once in a while. Well, of course, I grew up here in Michigan, but we had Hockey Night in Canada on CBC, Channel 9 out of Windsor. So I'll never forget, every Saturday night, it's either the Maple Leafs or the Canadians watching you, and Daryl Settler, and so on. But your great announcer would say, number 19, Larry Robinson. I'll never forget that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What so, a great guy and a great teammates. And, uh, and, Larry, just continue everything we've done as a team, and those guys taught the other kids coming up, and uh, they uh, they change a little bit after over the years. That that's unfortunately, and uh, it, it, you know, it's it's not the same anymore. Uh, that salary cap changed the whole structure of uh, what the team is all about. Uh, now, if you're over the cap. Uh, uh, you just a number, you know. The, the, you're over the cap, and and we need we need room for three million, and there you go. And that 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 that's really that that that's really hurts how to to be a good team because you're basically a number, right? And you know uh, that that that's what the hard cap does, and hard cap is is good for 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 the balance of the league and. If you have a soft cap, then you can sign a tiny, and and there's there's no problem. You just pay the luxury tax, and but that's not the way it works in the National Hockey League. That's right. Uh, a friend, of course, to Shohei Otani, the great pitcher and batter, a, a, a talent I've never seen before. I guess Babe Ruth could both pitch and bat. That's the last guy to do that. But anyway, in baseball, but look at look, look at the salary going in baseball with a cap. With a soft cap, could you know? And could you imagine having that in the National Hockey League? It would be the same result. Uh, so I, I think they're right in the National Hockey League. It gives the weak team, the small market team, to be to compete just as good as the as the big market. Well, it makes sense, especially in the case of hockey. Uh, you've got, I believe, what seven NHL franchises in Canada, uh, with the Canadian dollar being twenty percent lower and so on. It'd be almost impossible many Canadian teams. Montreal could compete, Toronto could compete, probably Vancouver. The other ones would have a hard time, I think. Uh, Ottawa, for example. So uh, that's very important in hockey as well. Uh, you mentioned John Beliveau. John Ferguson, uh, a very different kind of guy than John Beliveau. John Ferguson, of course, is from Western Canada, um, into horses, big, tough guy, whereas John Beliveau is the classic, uh, smooth Canadian player. Uh, and yet he also had a very profound impact on you and your career. Well, uh, John 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 became at my I, my very first year in the National Hockey League. He, he became a very very close friend. Uh, we had a lot of things in common. Uh, you know, we have we have the same character. Uh, not for fighting, but 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 you know, he's, he he loves horses. He loves playing tricks, and uh, uh, I just I, and it looks like he started playing tricks on me. <laughs> uh, and I, I, I did the same thing on him, and uh, uh, and, we, and one night we were on the train coming back from Detroit, and 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 after we won that night, and and that was maybe a month and a half going into the season, and and it's a long way coming back home by train, and Toblik walked into the train, and he was going in his cabin, and he says to the old to the to the veterans he says you guys are getting soft so he was giving them the message tonight is the night for the initiation and uh <laughs> and, and they all they they all put their shoes behind my 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 bed under my bed and they say you have to shine the shoes of the veteran and if you don't do that something's gonna happen i said i told fergie if you put your shoes there you might not like it tomorrow. So <laughs> it started like that. You know, we were very close, and uh, and uh, and we like we love horses, and uh, we stay. I, I spent a week with him in Windsor the the week before he passed away, and uh, that that would that that some last day with him. I'll remember all my life. He was a very close friend, and even at the end. He had no chance of coming back. He was still fighting, and he was, he was still telling me, I, I, "I'll beat this." And you know, he passed away about twelve hours later. 
uh, what a great person. Uh, of course, tough guys in those days were very, very different. They, they weren't very, they, they weren't the designated uh, hitter like in the 70s. Was only one tough guys per team, and usually they would get one against each other, like Ted Green in Boston. Uh, and the tough guy was playing regular, like like Fergie one year got 28 or 29 goals. You know, he was a regular player. It was very different definition of the tough guy than, than in the 70s. Uh, but he was just, uh, and off the ice, different person. Off the ice, he was a pussycat. He was uh, the nicest person you can find, very polite and uh, uh, and a very generous person. And uh, when I retired in 1981, uh, in August, and, and they had the waiver draft in September, and, and he, I, of course, Montreal didn't, didn't protect me, and he drafted me without calling me. And he called me right after the draft. He says, I just drafted you. Just come on. I says, John, I just retired. And uh, I was... I was learning to be, uh, was studying to be a stockbroker, and I, 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 I don't think I want to come back. So he kept calling me almost every week till December, and then in December, uh, I decided to go. When he called me, you know, an athlete, being an athlete, I, I, I learned over the years that an athlete never dies, and you always think you can do things that you were doing. 10, 20 years before. And it's, uh, I realized that as a golfer now. I'm 77. <laughs> and I get to the, I get to the tee off and I still think I can shoot the same thing that I did 20 years ago. Uh, I can't either. That helps. But anyway, yes, it happens to a lot of, <laughs> and I wasn't all that great to begin with bogey golfer, but, uh, interesting stuff. You, Jean Beliveau, the flying Frenchman, of course, playing forward. Uh, you playing defense, of course, hall of famer. John Ferguson, a tough guy, very different in your games, in your styles, and yet all three of you, one huge thing in common, you guys always put the team first, and that was definitely part of your mindset. And that, I believe, you transferred, you and John Ferguson certainly did, when you made the 1972 Team Canada for the Summit Series against the Russians. Um, what Ferguson told Harry Sinden, the head coach from Boston, he said, I'll do this if I can pick two or three players myself. And who did he pick? He picked you and Pete Mahovlich two of the keys, you guys would not have won it flat out without you and Pete. I'm sure of it. The thing, you, you know what happened? I, I, I broke my leg uh, uh, the second time in, in, in March 71. And I came back, I, I, March or February, I forgot the exact, the exact date. But I came back in February 72 after missing a full year. Uh, and I start to be about the same level at the end of the season, the last couple of weeks of the season. And, and I was not in the plan for 72 at that time. But Fergie had me in his plan. And, and, and he called me. I was surprised. Uh, and, of course, it's because there, there were three, four defensemen that, that refused to report, like Jacques Leperrier and Jacques Leperrier didn't report. G.C. Trombley didn't report because he had joined the WHA. Uh, there's a few guys, so there were room for at least training camp. And, and, and Fergie had picked me and he says, just show up at the camp. And I remember the very first day at the camp in Toronto, uh, Red Fisher saw me in the hall. You know, the Red Fisher was a, a well-known reporter all across the league. And he says, what are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> that was his question. I said, you'll find out later on. So <laughs> that was my answer at that time. And, and to me, I, I've been to uh, many Stanley Cup uh, uh, as a player in Montreal, but it, it's really the highlights of my career uh, in, in 1972 in Moscow. That That's something that, uh, that I, I don't think anybody will see in the future in, in that form. It's it's very was very special because the younger guys now don't realize that hockey was really Canada Russia at that time and and it was on there was no European uh, hockey player in the National Hockey League and very few Americans the Americans was just starting to produce players at that time 
So, the NHL. so hockey was hockey. Yeah. No, hockey is international, very different game, and and United States are producing hockey players just as much, just as many as Canada. Uh, very true. In fact, <clears throat> the 1972 All Star Game, and you were in that one, of course. And you, uh, Serge Savard, by the way, won eight Stanley Cups as a player and two more as a uh, front office, of course, president and general mo- uh, general manager of the Montreal Canadiens. But in 1972, the All-Star Game, every single player on both sides was Canadian. Not one European, not one American. And that's a very different game than we're playing today, obviously. That's how dominant uh, Canada was, of course. And so the yeah, idea... but, but there was a few American, but uh, but there was no All-Star American, like uh, maybe the very first uh, American, uh, like Lou Nanny, uh, Oliver, what's his name? I, I was the first... Uh, American player that played with Boston. I forget the name and Lou Nanny, and, and that was not All Star material at that time. It was only a few, only two, three in the National Hockey League. So it was all you guys, and nobody ever believed that a team from the Soviet Union, from Moscow, could ever compete against you guys. That first night in Montreal, at September second, nineteen seventy-two, you're in the stands because you're still rehabbing your leg, and they did not think they were going to need you yet. Um, but well, and- I was. I was in the stand because they didn't pick me that night, you know, not because I was injured. Uh, I guess uh, they were, Ari was, was, you know, at that time, everybody was so sure to win all eight games. Uh, I remember the night before, Ari told everybody at the meetings, everybody will play at least one game. And you had 35 players in order to have a good scrimmage. And no team had 35 players. Harry's biggest mistake, and uh, I don't know, not too many guys mention it, but but his biggest mistake was to dress only five defensemen the first game, and uh, and on a big surface in Montreal, and those guys were were skating 100 miles an hour, and starting in the middle of the games, nobody could keep up with them, and everybody claimed, well, they're not in good shape, this this and that, but how did we? You think we were in better shape at 48 hours later when we won 4-2? 4-1. 4-1. In Toronto. So, so I, I, I guess, you know, we dress different players. We dress six defensemen. And uh, so so we, I, I know we were not 100% in top shape, but, but, but at least we compete with them. If you take away maybe the Vancouver game, we compete every game. We had a chance to win every other game. Uh, and you're right. And I've interviewed, of course, Harry Sinden for the book, The Greatest Comeback, about the Summit Series. He said one big mistake he made, and we certainly mentioned it in the book, about a page or two on that, was dressing five defensemen. The idea being it be a lot harder to get all the forwards into these games than it was to, be, to get the defensemen. So he did not think that the Soviets were going to be that good, despite all his warnings. Nobody quite believed it. And, of course, that night, the Soviets win 7-3. to three. You must have been stunned by what you saw. Well, I was stunned, and uh, you know, uh, I, I'm I'm a good team teammate, and I always been teammate, and I would never say a word at that time that the, the coach made a mistake. You should address six defensemen. That's not the way to look at things. Uh, I was very upset inside, not being dressed, especially at home the first game, and uh, I think I had a very good training camp. Uh, especially the last couple of weeks of the training camp. Uh, personally, I thought I deserved to be there, but but the feeling was everybody will play, no matter who's on the ice. That was the the feeling, and, and it changed in a hurry. It took about ten minutes to 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 <laughs> to, 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 to to come back on earth. Uh, yes, as Red Barrington told me, between periods nobody was talking because nobody could breathe. So <laughs> that's how. That's how scary it was between the first and the second period. And Paul Henderson turns to Brad Parker and says, we're screwed. And they were right, of course. So, But you're right. Put six defensemen in there. And Harry also, to his credit, adapted his roster. And he adapted also the style of play to some degree, more defensive, yeah. as you know. Yeah. So yeah, you and I, Guy, I the really point. like Harry. Uh, of course, uh, before 72, I didn't like him much because uh, – I don't think I, I really like anybody playing on the Boston Bruins. And we <laughs> we uh, it, it seems like you know we were in the same division. We played the 
uh, 15, 20 games per year against them. If you count the exhibition games and the playoffs, we were in the playoff almost every year against them. And, and in those days, they were the big, bad Bruins and uh, was always, uh, you know, small rink in, in Boston. Uh, and it was always a really, really tough game against them. So, so I kind of dislike those guys. And, uh, uh, of course we were taught not to like the opponent. And, uh, I remember said one night I, I was in the restaurant with, with Fergie and we saw Jerry Cheevers in, in the restaurant and he says, uh, a restaurant or a bar. I don't remember. <laughs> and he says, uh, let's go, let's go somewhere else. And, uh, we just didn't want to socialize with those guys. And, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, up to 1972 with that series, uh, of course I liked Bobby Hoare because he was the best player in the game. Uh, and like a guy like Espo, you know, he, he was not a likable person and, and, uh, didn't like them. But, uh, until we hit 72 and we became teammates and, we we kind of say, well, those guys are not that bad, and 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 looking at at Phil, and uh, I know you saw the series of the whole series, and Phil probably not probably he did play his best hockey of his career, uh, and uh, I, had, I have a lot of respect for him in 1972, especially that series, and and if you look at some of the replay, you saw Phil in front of our goalie. You never seen Phil <laughs> in his own zone in those years. He's, he, yeah, thanks God against us. He's just floated that center ice waiting for a loose puck. Uh, but that's not that's not what he did in 1972. You know, I I never seen him to work that hard. Mm -hmm. Well, he did it that year, of course. You already anticipated my question, Serge, and that is Phil Esposito. Almost everybody I talked to on the Summit Series team, Brad Park. <clears throat> the Rangers hated him. Canadians hated him. The Red Wings weren't very good at that time, but they hated him too. <laughs> everybody hated Felsposito and playing the Bruins and, you know, big, bad Bruins, a lot of fights and all that stuff. Uh, Ted Green and all that, but also Phil's style of play. But that changed. And your relationship with Felsposito changed during that series, of course. Uh, Serge Savard is the only player on that roster to never lose against the Soviets and the only one to win all four games and the ties. So you've got a perfect four, uh, zero and one record, but the team was one win, two losses, one tie. When you go overseas to play the last four games in Moscow, you get a weekend in Stockholm when Gila point, uh, he has his son, of course, his first son is born. And then you become a team. And this is led, I believe by the Canadians, the Montreal Canadians. That is you guys turn this squad into a team. Well, uh, well, not only us. The, the the whole team got together. Uh, I guess when 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 the defector left the team, it gave us a really a strong reason to tie it up. To 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 we became more of a team. And some players might have tell you differently, maybe another time. But 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 after those guys left, I know I was mad. I know a lot of players were mad. And that's not the way to do. You never quit. We were learned. We learn never quit. No matter if it's only 30 seconds left in the game, you never quit. You never quit. And when those guys left, we got mad and, and we, I think we, be, we became more of a team. And the record one, two and one looks maybe worse than it really was because, you know, you, 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 the worst part of it was if we tie, we lose. We had to win all the games, but the, you take one at the time, and and we had a great chance. And I, 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 I always thought that we had a good chance to win. Well, you did, of course, you proved it. But you're mentioning Vic Hadfield, who had scored 50 goals just that spring, of course, that season for the New York Rangers. Gilbert Perrault, the best rookie of the season the previous year, of course. Two big stars, a few other guys who were complaining about their playing time, and you have to give. Harry Sinden credit. He did not hesitate. This is a tough decision, and he made it very quickly. Get him on the plane as fast as possible. We can't afford having anybody in that locker room who is not part of this team and does not believe. But in case, uh, if I, if I, a couple of years ago, I, I sat with Gilbert Perro. You know, he's a good person, a good friend of mine, and uh, and I and I. And I 
he told me things that I did not know. Like he said, I, uh, I says, what happened? How come? You know, everybody blamed Punch Hamlack. Uh, everybody said at that time, Punch Hamlack told us to come back. But, 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 what, what, what he, he told me, he says, I went to see Iris and, and I asked him, are you going to use me? Iris said, no. To me, it's not a reason to leave because, because you, 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 you never know. You never know. You maybe we would maybe we could lose two center men. We never know. But he decided to leave. But not after he went to see Harry and and uh, to me I I, I I I don't accept that 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 that, uh, that excuse. But but uh, at least he he did that. You understand, right? At least a little bit more. But you're right. You would not have left, of course. Uh, Dale Talon, Marcel Dion, future Hall of Famer, of course. These guys stayed. And it's got to be said. So credit given for those guys. Um, jumping ahead, though, you got the last three games left. You're now down one, three, and one. You have to win all three games on Moscow ice. They're big rink. They're crazy refs. Um, they're crowds, of course, guys with AK-47s lining the rink. This is as hostile environment as any man could ever play in, I think, in the history of the game, frankly. But Harry Sinning gave you guys very good advice. Just go shift by shift. Don't think too hard. Don't look ahead. We can't afford to. Shift by shift is not a bad philosophy. It, it is, uh, and it it was uh, really tough to accept. You know, the first game in Moscow, that game we were leading by two or three goals, and there's no way we should have lose that game, but we did. So there we go. We won three and one, and we had to win the last three. And uh, and uh, and to me, it's not like. Uh, we are a very weak team. We doesn't stand a chance. We were a very strong team with a lot of power, and we have we have, we we had a chance to win every game with that team. So let's play shift by shift and game by game, and we have a very good chance. That that's the way we were thinking. Let's not look ahead. Let's just look what's in front of us, and we did. And we we never let we never let go. We we. We played all the way, uh, even the last game, you know, with 34 seconds to go. And Harrison then is yelling, Don't, let's not give a two-on-one. And we did, you know, with 30 <laughs> seconds to go. And that's that's the game of hockey. You're not alone on the ice. Right. There it is. Uh, but you guys played great when it mattered the most. He also, Harrison and said, and I interviewed him, of course, for the book. He was great to me. He talked for two or three hours. Wonderful conversation. Um, he said that, look, once I got the defense figured out, a lot of things started making sense. Keeping you and Gila Point together for the last three games. Keeping uh, White, of course, and Stapleton together from the Chicago Blackhawks. And then Gary Bergman and Brad Park playing his best hockey of his career as well. He said, as you said when we started talking about Toe Blake, you guys went defense out and against those high-flying forwards doing different systems that you've never seen before. Harry said that's where it had to start. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know what Harry told me down the road? He says uh, Clarence Campbell told him that Gila Point and Sir Shamar cannot play together. This is really unbelievable quote because, you know, I'm a left-handed defenseman, and, and when I arrived with the Montreal Canadiens, we were five defensemen, and the fifth def defenseman played only when somebody got hurt. And if somebody got hurt on the right side, you go on the right side because that's the only position available. So I learned to play every position, including forward. Uh, and it turned out that I play most of my career on the right side. You and Guy. Yeah. Well, I play with Larry a lot, but I play with Guy also. You know, but I, I, I play more when, when Robinson arrived. I play more with Larry Robinson than Gila Point. But still, I could play with anybody. Well, of course, you play in the off deep side, if you will, the off wing, as we say in forwards. Uh, look it up, kids. Serge Savard, the spin around move, the spinorama. It's a great move, and it was way ahead of his time. That was a pretty fancy move for a pretty stay at home defenseman. He crossed the blue line, spins around, and it's coming right at the net, and the guy's behind you. Love that one. Yeah, well, uh, I, I guess, you know, I, I saw Doug Harvey do that. And Doug Harvey was 
to me, became a hero. Of course, when I was young, was Rocket Richard and then Bellavo, and 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 then I started to play defense. Doug Harvey became, you know, a guy I was looking up for. But when just a story when I came at the first training camp in Montreal, I filled the sheet. Uh, Serge Savard, six three, two hundred and fifteen pounds. I was fifteen years old at that time, and. And, and, and those guys and, and position, I see the center and defense, uh, and they, they they turn around and they came back to me and they said, "You're too big to play forward." So they did starting at 15 right away. They put me on defense, uh, and that's Cliff Fletcher is still alive. And Cliff says, "You're you're too big to to play forward," and that's how I became a defenseman. And after that. I remember we were only five defensemen, and I was at the end of the bed. They were playing with four, and all of a sudden came a penalty, and Toblik put his hand on my shoulder. You go and kill that penalty forward with Claude Crow. And because because of my ability of playing forward before. So I killed penalties forward a lot in my career. Maybe not at the end of my career, but but with Toblik, I killed with uh, Scotty Bowman. And told Blake I killed a lot of penalty forward. Huh. Well, now one of my mentors said, put your best four defensive players out there. And one of them was a, one of them was a defenseman, so be it. So there you are. Uh, you know how to get rid of the puck up, of course, get it out there. You win the final game. After all the odds, you're down five to three going into the third period, but no one panics. You guys score three goals. You're out there a whole lot in the third period, naturally. Um, I. Look at the studies. More Canadians saw Game Eight, which is at two thirty in the afternoon, or one thirty or twelve thirty, depends on where you are in the country. More Canadians watched that during school, during the work week, and so on, than saw the moon landing three years earlier. And you watched the moon landing. When I interviewed Wayne Gretzky for this book, I said, "That's a pretty amazing stat." And he looked at me like I had two heads, and I was stupid American. And he says, "It was more important." <laughs> And then the moon landing. And in Canada, it certainly was. Uh, you were amazed when you came home at the response the, from the Canadian people when you got to Montreal on the flight, of course, late at night. Uh, but the country was going crazy. Yeah, well, technology uh, was not what it is today. And, uh, and the communication uh, with uh, Canada and Moscow were only those telegrams that, 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 that you send or it was very hard to get a phone, to get a line, to talk to somebody in Canada. So we didn't, we had no ideas. What you know, we knew it was a big impact. We were in Canada before, but we didn't know the 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 the, the, the size of that impact. That 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 uh, sixteen million out of uh, or eighteen out of twenty two million were watching that game. Uh, which was in the at, at noon here in Canada, in Montreal or or two o'clock I forget exactly but but it, at least in the afternoon it was not at night and and as to me I, when I meet people and they say oh I was at school and the and the prof brought the television sets in in, in the room uh, in the classroom or the guy said well I did go to school that day. Uh, that's the case of Gretzky when I read his book, and he says he didn't go to school. He didn't tell his father, but he didn't go to school to watch that game. But that that was the case. Uh, everybody that I, I talk to that are at least 50 and over, uh, I always get the same answer. And it, it was pretty amazing. It's one of those events. You know, people, people all remember where they were when John Kennedy was assassinated. It's the same thing. Everybody remember where they were when we won in 1972. That's that that's the uh, that's the 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 the, uh, the event of the century here in Canada. And they they had a survey. It came before World War II. Oh yeah. In fact, I've made the case in the book. This might have been the single most important moment in Canadian history that made Canada a nation, a unified nation, in a way it really wasn't before. Uh, the flag was well, new. If you look, uh, you know, we 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 had a flag only in nineteen nineteen sixty seven or sixty eight. Sixty six. Yep. Sixty six. We had our flag in nineteen sixty six. So our flag was only eight years old, 
uh, and, and not everybody, a lot of people didn't agree with that flag and they want a different one and everybody has his own IDs. But as soon as we were that flag on our jersey, was no comment about that flag. It, it, it became unanimous. Uh, so so, so the, the, that team did a lot to unify the, the country. Uh, to me, uh, still yesterday, uh, I, I don't take anything away from my Stanley Cup, but, but this is the most important sports event in my career for me. Well, you're not the only guy to say that either. Uh, Ivan Cornway has uh, a ton of Stanley Cups as well. He says the same thing. I'm amazed by that, of course. So it really does stick home, uh, to say the least. One very easy test for a Canadian, by the way. If you ask a Canadian who was old enough where they were on September 28th, 1972, and they can't answer, they're not a Canadian. That's a very simple test. <laughs> they're, they're lying to you. They're from somewhere else. Because uh, every Canadian I've ever met, every single one, including my Uncle Bill, who's now about 85 years old, not a sports fan, he was a graduate student at McGill, and he found a bar in Montreal to watch Game 8. Everybody, everybody, no matter how can I show, hockey you Can I show you something? Sure, of course. There are a cup, and there it is, Team Canada. Beautiful, beautiful painting, by the way. Fantastic. And that, t that says it all. And of course, there's a great scene where Dennis Hall, who never won a Stanley Cup, turns to his good buddy, <laughs> Yvonne Cornway, afterwards and says, is this what it's like to win a Stanley Cup? And Yvonne says, you don't have one? <laughs> like you go to the store yeah, and get but, them. But Yvonne says, this is better than a Stanley Cup. And he did say that. And said, really? <laughs> he, was, well, he was pretty happy about that. Well, and great players like Brad Park, who never won a Stanley Cup, they take great consolation in what you and Yvonne and yeah. guys like that say. That yeah. uh, th this is your Olympics. I mean, this is it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know that, yeah, you're exactly right. That, and uh, they, 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 they should be very proud. That's the highlight of their career. Uh, and there's one thing that I miss in my whole career is the Olympic. I would love to play in the Olympic, but uh, I think this, this series just as good as the Olympic. But, but that's something that I would love to be on the campus. Uh, and, and played the Olympics. You know, uh, we weren't allowed in, the, in our days, but it's too bad. <coughs> oh, this is pretty good, though. Not a bad substitute, of course. So to close it up, I always take three takeaways. In your case, very straightforward. I've got six or seven here. And by the way, Serge, I take notes all the time from our conversation. There we go. I always do my homework, <laughs> as you know, as Mark does, of course, his son, who's a judge in Montreal. Great guy, become a good friend of mine. Uh, I'll take three out here. One, uh, we know how to win as a team. If your career and your life stands for one thing, it's your dad and Landrian being the mayor, of course, is putting the team first. You know how to build a team and how a team has got to function. To those ends, defense first. Everyone's got to play defense. That's everybody. It's uh, accountability to each other. Um, and the third thing I'll take away is shift by shift. Don't look too far ahead. Focus on the job you've got today. So, Last question I've got, Serge, is who was your favorite teacher in Landrian, or perhaps in your case, your favorite coach? I'll leave it up to you. Well, uh, in Landrian, uh, of course, it's my father. My father always been my hero and uh, my favorite coach. Uh, I, you know, I always said the best two coach to me was Toe Blake and uh, uh, and Scotty Bowman, but uh, I have to pick Scotty Bowman because he he, uh, he coached me in junior. Uh, he coached me all those years in Montreal, and uh, and and he made a better player out of me. So that that's why I I, I look at Scotty Bowman as the best coach ever. Uh, he 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 he, did, he learned. He was he was raised in the Montreal Canadian organization. He was raised how to win, what it takes to win. And when I became a GM, it's the same thing. The 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 my, the, the Biggest challenge that I had is to convince everybody to play as a team. You know, I, I in that nineteen eighty three, I had three guys, four guys were between eighty and a hundred points. I had good players: Brian Bellows, Donfus, I had uh, Muller. I had very good players, and and yet to convince those guys, if you don't play in a certain way, we're not going to win, and they all did. They all did, and, and and we lost the first two games of the playoff that year, 
and then we lost two of the next 18. That's a record. Uh, and, and that's it's almost impossible, good. right? You're playing that's against the best good. teams out there. To, so. to pretty win, good. To win. It's, yeah. un, it's unprecedented. Yeah, <laughs> it's win, pretty damn to good. Win. And to win to win ten games in a row in overtime, it's pretty good too. It's it's uh, ninety three. That's a record too. Uh, that's of course under uh, Jacques Demare, whom I got to know a little bit here in Detroit. Of course, I can also tell you, Serge. I've known you now for about four or five years. We've talked a fair amount. Uh, one story I've not told you is how you helped my career before I actually met you, and that's because in ninety five to ninety nine at the Detroit News, talking to Scotty Bowman, who's then the head coach, of course, of the Red Wings. Some days Scotty did not feel like talking. When that happened, all I had to say is, tell me about Serge Savard. Tell me about Guy Lapointe. And he smiles and he starts talking. Cool. Thanks. <laughs> That's how you get Scotty to talk. So you were helping me out long before I ever met you. So merci beaucoup. Encore for that, of course, my guest has been the great Serge Savard, one of the 50 greatest NHL hockey players of all time, one of the great team men of all time, great captains, great Team leaders, of course, president and general manager of the Montreal Canadiens, 10 Stanley Cups. And let me close by talking about your dad, of course. He said, above all, be a good man. I've been around you enough in enough different places to know that your father raised a very good man. So, Well, uh, thank you very much, John. Very appreciated. Thank you very much. The book is called uh, The Greatest Comeback. It's about the 72 series. I got that quote from Bar Brad Park. And Serge was a great help on that one. And it is, in fact, I believe, the greatest comeback ever recorded uh, because you're down so deep at that point uh you had to win all three games and that was it and what you guys did was amazing so my guest is Serge Savard check out the book the greatest comeback you'll get more of him check out his book forever Canadian you can get it online Amazon US or Canada uh wonderful guest you are listening to uh the podcast let them lead uh the podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today I'm John U. Bacon the uh author of let them lead unexpected lessons in leadership from America's worst high school hockey team. Please subscribe, leave a review, and tell your friends. Serge, last time, merci beaucoup encore. Thank you, John. You've been listening to Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today with your host, John U. Bacon, author of Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. We hope you enjoyed this episode, got a few laughs, and picked up some insights you can use tomorrow and think about for years. Please feel free to leave your comments about any and all of the podcast episodes, and by all means, spread the word. Please join us again for another fun, fast, and fulfilling serving of Let Them Lead. <laughs>